This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Okay, let's pray. Father, we love You. Come in the name of Jesus, Lord, uh, again tonight. Looking to You, Father, uh, we pray. Um, enable us to receive from You, to receive from Your Word what You would have for us tonight. Lord, um, we're told in Your Word that we're sanctified, set apart by Your truth, and Your Word is truth. So we pray, make it effective in our hearts tonight so that we are changed, forever changed in the sense that little by little we are conformed to the image of Christ. Use this meeting together, we pray, to that end for Your glory in Christ's name. Amen. In Matthew 16 again, actually... um, Starting a new section here, um, this Matthew has kind of traditionally uh, been divided into three parts. At least this is one of the common divisions. I mean, there there are all kinds of ways of dividing up the gospels and the and, and all of Scripture for the purpose of study. But uh, one of the common Divisions in Matthew has, has been, uh, let me give you this passage here. The first, the first one we came across, the first section is, of course, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 16. Um, and there uh, you have, of course, the genealogy and uh, the, the birth of Christ, the ministry of John the Baptist, and Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And then if you notice in, in verse 17, it says, From that time, this is Matthew 4:17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, um, interpreters, again, traditionally have taken that to, to be a major shift here in, in Matthew's focus. Um, based on that phrase, from that time, Matthew, Matthew is saying, you know, now from this point, we move from we move from this to this, and so now we have an account start, starting in chapter four, verse seventeen. We have an account of Jesus' public ministry, and then that ends in Matthew sixteen, verse twenty, where we finished this morning, and you see that same phrase in verse twenty-one. From that time, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples. So now we've got a shift from Jesus' public ministry to His more private ministry um, with His disciples as He prepares for His suffering and death. So, from Matthew 4 to Matthew 16, you've got primarily a public ministry with a little bit of private ministry you know, uh, mixed in there. We have places where He talks specifically to the disciples. But from now on, you've got... Primarily, private ministry with the disciples with a little bit of public ministry mixed in. 
in the, in the final final chapters. So it, it's a it's it's a it's a new section that we're moving into. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, and I'm going to read on here through verse. Let's see. We'll go down through verse 23. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, let's stop there. Um, what I want to do is, is take these, the remainder of this chapter and basically divide it into two parts. Um, the first one, uh, the verses we just read, and, and talk a little bit about embracing the suffering of Christ. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, take... Uh, verses 24 through 28, and talk about embracing the suffering of self. So, embracing the suffering of Christ. Uh, now, this this is an, an astounding exchange between Jesus and, and Peter in light of what we just finished talking about this morning, isn't it? I mean, you look at verse uh, 16, which we focused in on last Sunday, and uh, and then what we talked about this morning and Verses 18 and 19. Look at verse 16. You are the Christ. This is Peter speaking. Jesus says, who do, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. All kinds of opinions. And then Jesus says to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He makes an uh, 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 amazing confession concerning the identity of Christ. And he's, he's dead on. It's the nail on the head. And so Jesus commends him. Verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, of course, this is what we talked about this morning. Peter has received divinely imparted revelation from God concerning uh, the nature of Christ, concerning the identity of Christ. And that's true of every Christian. That, that may sound uh, a little lofty. Well, it is lofty, frankly, uh, not, not in a prideful way. It's nothing for us to brag about uh, as if we accomplish something. But, but God divinely imparts this information to His people uh, so that we understand who Jesus is. So Peter has received divine revelation concerning the, the identity of Christ. Surely... Surely from this point on, he's not going to mess up anymore. Right? Well, no. Wrong. Uh, but he does know who Jesus is. And he is following Jesus. So now we move to verse 21. And you, you, the last thing you would think is that Peter would say the kind of thing or be guilty of the kind of thing that he is here, uh, especially after having made that confession. Again, verse 21, Jesus began to show to His disciples He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This is central um, to who Jesus is. 
central to the gospel message, uh, a, a title that we often use uh, in reference to Jesus is the title Savior. He came to save. He said himself, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Paul says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to save. This is central to his, his mission. Central to who he is because he's merciful. Because he, he's gracious. And so now he's taking the disciples aside, as it were. As we already mentioned, the, the focus is primarily now on his teaching them privately. And what is he talking to them about? What he has come to do? To suffer many things, to die and be raised the third day. Well, you might think, um, what's the problem with that? You, 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 think, you think about it in the context that we're in, and most of us have heard this message all of our lives probably. We've had it drilled into us, even before we, some of us, even before we were believers, even before we uh, were actively serving Christ or loving Christ. We, we heard that He was Savior. We heard that He had died for the sins of the world. And so it's just kind of uh, second nature to us when, when thinking about um, God. But this, this is a foreign concept to them. Uh, perhaps it should not have been. God has made His purpose known to some degree. He had given some light. For example, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52 and 53, we have two chapters there discussing the suffering Servant, And that's a prophetic word about Jesus, man of sorrows who would come and suffer. He would, he would take our iniquity upon Himself. He would be marred more than any man. He would suffer for us as a lamb led to the slaughter. But for whatever reason, um, they, they weren't getting that aspect of His ministry. They didn't get it. It's not even the first time Jesus has mentioned it uh, in, in the Gospels. He's, he's alluded to it, but they didn't understand it. And sometimes, just purposely, uh, would not ask Him about it because they didn't understand. You remember we, we looked at one reference twice already where He, he refers to um, His death and resurrection as the sign of Jonah. No, no sign will be given this perverse generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So he's already alluded to it, but they're still not getting it. Their, their concept of a Messiah is much like uh, that of the rest of the Jews. They're looking for a military leader. A king, a ruler, one who would rule over the nation of Israel, deliver them from their Roman oppressors. They're certainly certainly not looking for him to leave. They've left all to follow him. I mean, they put their lives on the line, so to speak. They're invested in him. He's talking about. Bringing in the kingdom, which he's going to do, but just not the way 
that they have it pictured. And so now he's talking about suffering and dying. And they're thinking that's far beneath you. Look at Peter's words in verse 22 and actions. He takes Jesus aside as if to scold him. That's what he does, rebukes him. Verse 22, Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now that sounds pretty innocent on the surface, doesn't it? In fact, it sounds like a great word of encouragement. <laughs> if you or I were going through something, we thought, boy, you know, the, the hammer's fixing to come down on me and, you know, I mean, things are just getting bad. And somebody takes you aside, no, 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 don't, don't, don't beat yourself down. You know, come on, you're above that. Lift up your head. Sounds like good words of encouragement. The problem is what Jesus is talking about doing here is fulfilling His mission, His purpose, God's will. And Peter, um, whether uh, he knows it or not, and I suspect he, he doesn't, is going against that. Far be it from you, Lord, for this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said, verse 23, that is Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me. Satan, you are an offense to me. That's strong language. Um, we've, we've talked about uh, discipline, and we were talking in our, in our class a little while ago about discipline and uh, the two forms, you know, formative discipline where you, you train. I mean, that's a positive thing. You train, actively train for some purpose, like if you're an athlete. You, know, you work out and you work out hard because you're trying to achieve goals. And that's, that's a, a great analogy of the Christian life. And, and the Apostle Paul uses that analogy. Um, the writer of Hebrews uses that analogy. Hebrews 12, um, he says, Lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets you. Run with endurance. He's using the analogy of an of a athlete, uh, an Olympic runner. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Looking unto Jesus. So he's saying, stay focused, stay focused on the finish line and run with endurance. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Jesus here exhibits another kind of discipline. That is corrective discipline. And by the way, he exhibits the first kind throughout the Gospels. He's, he's uh, constantly training the disciples, teaching them, taking them by the hand, leading them on. <clears throat> but now, correction is called for in this instance. And so we, we have an example of corrective discipline. And it is strong. Now contrast this just for a minute to what we talked about this morning. Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon. This is the same person. Simon, the son of John, Peter. Verse 18, you are a rock. And on this rock I will build my church. Boy, how encouraging is that? What a privilege is that to have... Have the Lord address you in such a way. And now here, the same Lord and the same disciple 
And Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Now I know he, he, he uses, he calls him Satan. He uses the name Satan because Satan is behind this. Uh, Satan, Peter is, is being deceived by Satan to, to make an attempt to stand in the way of Christ's mission. But he's talking to Peter. So I mean, that must be a, must have been a shocking rebuke to hear from the mouth of the Lord. You are an offense to me. And the word offense there is the one we so often see, um, scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal or scandalize. And it just means to, uh, to be a stumbling block or to cause to stumble. And usually when we see it, it's in the context of, of some, somebody stumbling spiritually. So for example, uh, we're told that Christ is a, is a, is a rock of stumbling. And the unbelievers, the unbelieving Jews specifically, the unbelievers stumble over Him. Talk more about that in a minute, Lord willing, because there's a reason that they do that, and, and it's in this text. But they they stumble at Him, and that's the way the the term is used often. Paul talks about Christian liberty in First Corinthians eight and and uh, chapter eight and chapter ten, and instructs us to not be stumbling blocks to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. That is, don't cause them to stumble. Don't trip them up on their journey. Deal, deal with one another in love so that we, we help each other along and encourage each other. Don't, even if what you're doing is right, Paul is saying, if it causes somebody else to stumble, don't do it. Don't exercise your liberty if it's going to cause somebody else to stumble and fall. So that's usually the way the word is used. But here it's used of the Lord, not, not somebody stumbling in their relationship with the Lord, but the Lord Himself stumbling. You are a stumbling block to me, Peter. You're an offense to me. That's strong language, especially for somebody that the Lord loves. And again, I, I realize he's, he says it to Satan, get behind me, Satan. But Satan here is, is working through uh, influence over Peter. So why is he... Why is he a stumbling block to the Lord? Well, he says in the rest of verse 23, and uh, this is where um, I think we find application for all of us. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, that's, that's where Peter himself tripped up. And then tried to put a stumbling block in front of the Lord. What, what did Jesus come to do? He came to die. He came, he came to suffer and die. This, this is God's plan from all eternity. And so, the, to even suggest that it should not be carried out or that perhaps um, Peter would have a better way is an offense to God. Now, we, we can only guess all that goes into this. I already mentioned some uh, things a little earlier. I suspect that, that Peter's mindset, and the rest of the disciples for that matter, is much like the rest of the Jews. They're looking for Christ to 
to set up a physical, material kingdom to reestablish the sovereignty of the nation of Israel, to deliver them from the rule of the Roman Empire. And so they're thinking, you, you can't suffer and die. All of that is, is beneath you, and that's dishonoring. Now, this is why I use the title Embracing the Suffering of Christ, because this method is foolishness to the natural mind. That the Lord of glory would come and suffer at the hands of wicked men. That He would stoop to allow Himself to suffer the ridicule and the persecution, the the physical beatings, and then ultimately to be murdered, executed as if He were himself a murderer or or common criminal. This is foolishness to the natural mind. And the natural mind is foolishness or, could say, an offense to God. Go with me for just a moment to... uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And just keep, keep Jesus' words in mind here. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So, um, you place more value, you could say, you, you place more value on the wisdom of men, place it over and above the wisdom of God in this manner, manner, uh, matter. And so that, that's, that itself is an offense to God. Look at a couple of verses here. Uh, first, I know I said chapter 1, but first let's go to chapter 2 and look at verse 14. Familiar passage. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, what, what Peter's doing here, you might say, is, is op- operating from uh, the standpoint or the viewpoint of the natural mind, the fleshly mind. So Jesus says, you're mindful of the things of men instead of the things of God. It's v- very revealing in terms of the depravity of man and how our, how our mind works against God's wisdom and God's will. It's, it's not as though it were neutral. That's what we like to believe a lot of times. Uh, but there is no neutral state. We're either in the Spirit, we're either on board with God, or we're at enmity with Him. And even in, 
even as Christians in little individual circumstances, I'm not saying we're saved, lost, saved, lost, I don't mean that at all, but just, just in, in individual circumstances, we may uh, and often do resist God's wisdom and will in our lives and, and find ourselves at odds with, God's, uh, with God, with His will. That's one reason in the sharp words that Jesus speaks to Peter with, we find encouragement. He, do, he doesn't leave Peter and say, you know, get away from me, get lost. You know, you're just, you're just there's no hope for you. Um, get away. No, he, he rebukes him because he loves him. And he's teaching him. Um, Jesus began to show, verse 21, back in uh, uh, where we were. In Matthew 16, Jesus began to show. He's teaching them now concerning the things He's about to, about to undergo. Why is that? Why is the wisdom of God hard for us to grasp? Why is, why is God's will offensive to us? And it is in the natural sense, just as I was saying. Christ and His mission is a stumbling block for the Jews. We're told that to the scripture, in the Scripture to this very day. It's a stumbling block for the world. I, I, was, I wish I could remember who the author was, but I was looking at something just the other day where uh, they were just railing against Christianity. It's a, calling it a bloody religion. And people accuse us of, of you know, being barbaric. Um, charges of cosmic child abuse. Um, all, all, you know, because God kills His own Son. Just all manner of craziness, really, um, against the truth of God and God's redemptive plan. Why is that? Well, the answer is in verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man, that is, the man who is operating entirely from the flesh, in other words, a man apart from Christ, a man who has not been regenerate, who has not been saved, born again. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. Now, notice the language right here. Nor can he know them. That is, he cannot know the things of the Spirit of God. Because they are spiritually discerned. The, the natural man is, is the opposite of being spiritual, so, so by definition, he can't spiritually discern things. So, he cannot receive, if you look again at the first part of that verse, or does not rather, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, and then he cannot know them, neither can he know them. And that word can has to do with ability. So you could say it this way. It doesn't have the ability. It doesn't have the ability to know the things of the Spirit of God. This is the state of the natural man. It's totally, totally focused on wisdom of men, savoring the things of man, totally focused on the flesh. That's the whole mindset. And he doesn't have the ability to receive or know the things of the Spirit of God. Why is that? 
Why is the natural man unable, and that's strong language too, why is the natural man unable to receive or to know the things of the Spirit of God? Well, really the answer is in this same verse, and then also I'm going to go back to chapter 1 in a moment. But look at verse 14 again, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. The gospel is simple. Think about it for a minute. Just, just, the, just the very basics of the gospel. We're all in sin. And God created all things. He created man, like we talked about Wednesday night. Adam and Eve sinned against God. The whole human race is plunged into sin, a state of sin, which means separation from God. So now uh, we're estranged from God. We are, we are separated. And so, He sends a Savior. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, right, so that all who believe on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus, the sinless, eternal Son of God, comes into the world. He takes on the form of a man. He's born of a virgin, Mary. He lives out a perfectly righteous life, fulfilling God's righteous commandments, which none of us are able to do. So He, in effect, earns righteousness in our behalf. And then He suffers and dies at Calvary. Spills His own blood, taking on Himself not only the wrath of man, Roman soldiers and Jews who hated Him and others, not only only suffering their wrath, but taking on Himself the wrath of His own Father in our behalf. So the whole human race is separated from God. We're plunged into sin. God sends His Son as Savior who dies in our place. He lives in our place and dies in our place. Rises again the third day, conquering death, demonstrating His power over death, and is declared to be the Son of God with righteousness And all who believe on Him, like John 3.16 says, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's, it's It's an exchange. Our sin for His righteousness. Now, if you just think about it in terms of the basics like that, it's not complicated, is it? It's very easy to understand. Every person can understand the idea, for example, of a ransom. And Jesus said He came to be a ransom for many. And everybody knows what that means. Everybody can understand that. Everybody understands the concept of substitution. What is, what is hard to understand about the gospel? The answer is nothing really. So, so why does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2.14, they are not able to receive the things of the Spirit. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor is he able to know them. 
And the answer is, because they are foolishness to Him. Now, this is what theologians of the past have called, past and present, but have called a moral inability. In other words, when Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, they cannot, the natural man cannot know the things of the Spirit, unable to know the things of the Spirit of God, he's talking about a moral inability. We are not able to do what is right or to receive the things of God because of the corruption of our own heart. Because of our sin. You know, there's, there's, there's not some kind of force field around us stopping us from receiving the things of God. There's, there's nothing, there's no complicated mystery about the gospel that, that has to be figured out. You know, you have to go buy some kind of, uh, uh, book or something, uh, that tells you about the hidden mysteries in the Bible. You don't have to do that. It's very straightforward and very simple. The reason the natural man is unable to receive these things is because of the corruption of the heart. That is, he he considers these things, the wisdom of God, the plan of God, the salvation that God has provided, the things of the Spirit of God, he considers them to be foolishness. Same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. <laughs> what, a, what a distinction. To the, to the unbelievers... To those who, who uh, are not saved, to the world, the message of the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the salvation. We were, I was just reminded, we were singing about that uh, earlier. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let's see. Um, Let me hide myself from thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. That is the water and the blood. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. But what the writer, Augustus Toplady, what he's saying there is the remedy for our sin is in the suffering and death of Jesus. That's the message of the cross. Let the water and the blood be of sin the double cure. Christ had to go to the cross. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to take on Himself the very wrath of God. And we understand that that is God's wisdom. That's the power of God unto salvation for us. But to the world, to the unbeliever, to the natural mind, to the mind set on the flesh... It is foolishness. It's foolishness. And so they're unable to receive it. Now, I'll just point all that out. 
to give some insight into Peter's heart here and ours too when we stand against God. The problem is, Jesus says, you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter's not not happy with at this point with the way that Jesus is doing things. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about being murdered. And he's he's beginning now to teach them these things to prepare them. And their first reaction is is not a good one. In fact, it's it's much 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 too like too much like the reaction of the world. That's, that's foolishness. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. This, this can't be the way. There, there, must, there must be something. There must be a better way. There must be something more dignified that you can do to accomplish your mission. But no, Jesus says, this is God's plan. These are the things of God. This, some call bloody religion, is God ordained. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And Christ came to shed His own blood. For us, so that we can be spared, so that we might have life. What is an offense to Christ is when His wisdom is rejected. It's when we set ours above His instead of the other way around. You know, Isaiah 55 says His thinking is not like ours. It's high. It's high above ours. His ways are not our ways. And again, the, the point there is that he, He's much higher. He's transcendent. But sometimes we get it backwards and we think our way is better than His way. That's what's happening with, with Peter here. Jesus says, you're an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of men. In other words, Peter, you're, you're still thinking in the flesh here. You're still, you're still um, thinking from a fleshly mindset. Your mind is set on the things of men. And Paul tells us in Romans 8, the mind of the flesh is at enmity. That is, it's at war with God. It's an offense to Him. God's wisdom may appear to be foolishness in the eyes of men, but in reality, uh, it is the, quote, wisdom of men that is really foolishness. And God is all wise. And thank God that He sent His Son to die, to suffer and die at Calvary to save us from the wrath of God. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this gospel message that You love this world so much in this manner that You sent Your only Son so that whoever believes in Him may not perish but have everlasting life. And Lord, um, when it comes to being mindful of the things of men and foolish in thinking, we're all, we all have to confess guilt. And so, Lord, we are thankful to You for opening our eyes to Your wisdom, the wisdom of Your ways and the Gospel message to, to making it not foolishness to us, but, but Your power, the power of God unto salvation. Lord, we pray for Your wisdom and letting these truths have the impact upon our lives that You designed for them to have. And may we learn as we, as we grow and grow in You, may we learn to continually reject the so-called wisdom of the flesh and value Your infinite wisdom. Learn Your ways and walk in Your Spirit for Your honor and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.